We are a group of friends bound by our appreciation for liberty and good podcasting. Free-minded thinkers from all walks of life, our values come together with one accord to discuss the common culture and news of the day, along with whatever random crap is going on in our lives. Welcome to the Union of the Unknowns. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Union of the Unknowns. Great to have your company yet again. Today we have a special guest that uh, has been, well, a bit of an old friend actually. We came together with the Propaganda Report, our, our pod mother and pod father, Monica Perez and Brad Binkley. And uh, he's actually been on Monica's show as well, but uh, he's very kindly decided to uh, join us on Union of the Unknowns. I'd like to introduce Grant. G'day Grant, how are you going? How are you guys doing? I'm doing good, how are you? Very good, thanks. It's good to talk to you. I'm good. We've been chatting so, away in, uh, what was the other place? Locals. That was, uh, that was a while ago, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> Time does fly. And uh, it you're... Uh, you're in our Discord group, I believe. Not overly active, but uh, I don't know how much you're actually in there, but <laughs> see what's going on. Uh, I, but, uh, I pop in every now and then. I mean, um, it's, it's it's hard for me to keep track of what's going on in there because I'm usually working with my hands anyway. So, Yeah, uh, yep, yep. Yeah, I know what you mean. Do you sort of, do you work a lot with uh, listening to podcasts and things? Yeah, I, uh, I have a whole range of podcasts that I listen to. Um, not everything's political. I'm very much interested in, you know, the supernatural, the paranormal, and uh, preternatural specifically. Um, kind of trying to build a bridge into modern day uh, cultural ideas and their roots and where they all stem from and, and the truth behind all of that. That's kind of where I'm at these days. Um, right. All part of the truth army. I think we've all got the same uh, destination <laughs> in mind, which is finding out whatever yep. the truth is. It's fairly elusive. It is. It is. But it's there. you got to dig for it, but it's there. Yep. Seek and you shall find. So it is said. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Grant, without, without doxing yourself, um, just no let me know how specific you want to be, but uh, what sort of area of the country are you in in the United States, if you don't mind? Uh, I'm in Louisiana. Oh, no, I'm in Louisiana. I'm, the, um, I'm in the boot part, uh, north of New Orleans, about two hours straight north, um, close to the Mississippi-Louisiana border. Oh, nice. That's a that's an area I'd love yeah. to. One of the few places in America that I would love to have gone. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's gorgeous out here and quiet. Yeah, so I take it you're on a few... Uh, some land, a few acres, or what have you got over there? Hectares? I do. I got, uh, well, I got four acres um, that I'm sitting on top of. I'm looking to expand out um, probably next year. Um, that'll be a remote property, but um, I want to start getting into livestock and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, great idea, <laughs> particularly with the yeah, uh, social temperature at the moment. Holy crap, you're right. <laughs> Get into the meat before it disappears. <laughs> That's right. right. 
Well, Grant, I think you're a very interesting man from what I've um, gathered in the past. There's so much stuff that I would love to talk to you about, so many topics, but we only have so much time, I guess. So um, since we're on the subject of of land, etc., I hope you can't hear my currawongs too, too much in the background. They're, uh, they're going off out there. They're, they're birds, by the way. No, it's all good. You're all good. <laughs> um, yeah, so you're uh, quite the... I don't know if you like the term prepper, quite the, um, well, I guess it is prepper. You've been doing that for a little while yep. and you um, seem to know uh, quite a bit about what you need as far as supplies go. Now, let me just ask you, you, you did you say you have a military background, correct? I do. Um, yeah. I had, I, I, uh, I enlisted in the United States Marine Corps um, shortly after high school, a couple years after high school. Uh, it was short-lived, but uh, um, one of the best experiences of my life, and I would definitely do it again if I was given the chance. Right. So, what's like that's um, that would have given you quite a few skills, which will definitely come in handy at some point. What's what sort of things did you actually gain from that? The the best part that I gained from the core was um, the belonging to something greater than yourself. Uh, and, and the Marine Corps is pretty unique in that respect is that, that um, it's a brotherhood, a fraternity more so than a military branch. Um, that's how Marines look at each other. And um, with that, it kind of gave me a, a sense of what loyalty and honor and integrity is. Uh, and don't get me wrong, it comes with the good and it comes with the bad and there's ups and there's downs and there's, you know, all of the usual stuff that still life happens within the core. Um, but early on when you're in boot camp, I mean, one of the first things that they do is um, they breed out your sense of mortality. The reality that you're going into this is you might not come out the other side of this. It's a very real thing. And so it kind of turns the volume down on a lot of the other aspects out in life where, you know, daily petty squabbles and complaints just really stop having meaning. You know, you're just like, really, this is what this is the best you got. And um, one of the hardest parts about military guys that transition back into the civilian world um, is your outlook on life is, is completely unique and different after that. Um, you kind of see things for what they are rather than um, all of the, uh, you know, the facades behind um you know, cultural ideals and things like that. Yeah. So it's yep. very grounding. It's very, uh, um, I don't even have a word for it. I can't even describe it because it's just, there's just something there that's, like I said, greater than yourself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think uh, you just hit it on the head. It's very grounding. And um, I assume that, of course, that stuff stays with you and you take it through the rest of your days. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, well, they're and fantastic in, 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 in I agree. And, and it's, you know, and in times where, like, life is rough, you know, because you're going to have your ups, you're going to have your downs, you're going to have um, obstacles and roadblocks put in front of you. Um, whereas, you know, before, before I joined the Corps, it was a uh, – you kind of looked at it like, oh, my God, how am I going to get through this, blah, blah, blah. And mm -hmm. nowadays I look at things, it's like, okay, 
there's one way through this and that's straight through it. So you just grin and bear it and, and make your way to the other side of whatever life throws at you. Um, and you know that, yeah, you're going to get some nicks and bruises, some scratches. You might bleed a little bit, but that's okay because you're going to get to the other side of this. And that's a mentality that I've taken with me throughout life, um, through fatherhood, through, um, you know, marriage and, and, and my siblings. Um, I take it to, I take it to work with me. Um, I drive on the road with it. I mean, it's, it's always there in the mind that, you know, if you adapt, you can overcome and you will do it. So that's, that's the greatest part of, you know, what I got out of it. Improvise, adapt and overcome, hey? Absolutely. I mean, I know that is Clint Eastwood, but I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure it came from the Marines. <laughs> yeah, sure fantastic. Came from, uh... <laughs> fantastic qualities yeah, we'll, we'll to give have. The... Yeah. Yeah, um, it's just a matter. I suppose it's it's really um, a matter of mastering your emotions, really, because emotions are such liars, um, and yet we seem to be so driven by them. And uh, I think you know they they um, they play on that. They know that <laughs> they're always uh, reaching for the heartstrings, aren't they, with their propaganda, etc. I agree, and uh, there's so many distractions out there currently that. Um... Um, it, it can be overwhelming to where you just don't know where the real fight is. And um, mm-hmm. and they do this stuff on purpose so that you, hey, you know, don't look behind the curtain or nothing. Um, go look over there. What's that over there? Mm-hmm. And we're going to do this and we're going to take away that. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, you got to be able to weed through all that and find out what their real, you know, objective is and how they're really going to go about it. Yeah. Yep. So would you say that you sort of, do, do you sort of kind of stay a little bit tuned out from that? Like, I, I can't imagine you're much, you would be a mainstream news listener, or I'm just wondering, do you listen to the news at all? Or do you, how, how in touch yeah. are you with that? Yeah, I read the mainstream news. I read the alternative news. Um, I, uh, I, what I try to do is kind of take from both of them and see where the common denominators are and um, make a judgment based on that. Because um, you're not going to get the whole answer, but everybody's going to have a piece of it. And if you piece it together, you generally get a general idea that, um, okay, this might be the direction they're headed in and it's looking pretty good. Um, but why is everybody saying, oh, look over there? Um, so what's really happening? And then you got to got to kind of dig that out. And then there's some of the smaller news agencies that are still a part of the mainstream, um, but they're smaller. Um, usually we'll throw little tidbits out there or perspectives that, you know, the bigger guys won't do. And um, you, you kind of find a side door that you can go into and explore through that and get a deeper perspective of uh, what, what's, what's really going on. Yes, so discernment, um, that's the key, isn't it, really? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You, you do have to have all the, all the pieces of the puzzle, including the ones that are easily rejectable, I suppose, easy to discern yep. that it's rubbish, but uh, it's all part of the picture, isn't it? So know your enemy, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you have been, <clears throat> as far as... um. I mean, that's fantastic uh, 
skills to have for prepping. I mean, perfect, really. Um, so how, how far have you gone with, with the whole prepping thing? Um, I remember a little while ago I did a, a logo for you. Um, I didn't really sort of get the whole gist of what that was all about. Um, are you sort of running some kind of a, a, a group or are you are you a mentor to people? How, how's that working? Like what are you doing? More, more of a mentor. Um, my aim is to bring – uh, bring people together um, and share um, ideas and help them dig out whatever strengths and weaknesses they have so they, they can utilize their strengths um, in a more productive manner and not let the weaknesses hinder them. Um, at the same time, um, I do communicate with other prepping groups um, throughout the United States, mostly. Um, I got one guy in, in uh, Northern England that I talk to a lot. But other than that, it's pretty much the United States. And then um, we just trade notes. And, you know, people have questions, they ask. And um, we find the best answers. And we don't just find a singular answer. What we do is we try to give you a host of answers so you can find which one works best for you. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Because it, not everybody's the same, obviously. So there's no one answer for yeah, and everybody. Region is, yeah, yeah. And every and you live in a different region. I mean, um, the guy up in uh, northern England. I mean, he has a, an entirely different climate than we do down here in the south um, southeast uh, United States. Mm. We're very humid. We're very wet down here. So growing agriculture and stuff like that is real easy up yeah, there. Right. Um, it's just cold. <laughs> yeah, even in the yeah, summer, not, it's not that hot. So not not much of a growing season up there, is there? Uh, More of a doing it, growing in, growing inside your house, and de or developing yeah. um, uh, greenhouses, or maybe even being mobile, so that you could have a bug out version of a greenhouse um, that's on wheels or something, something that you can self mm. um, sustain with for the long term your food supply um, in the non-perishable stuff is going to be limited. Yes. Yeah, you've got to keep it going at some point. Um, that's <laughs> I often think about that. It's Well, it's I've done it myself uh, during the 2021 debacle. Um, mm -hmm. It's just, <laughs> just me and my mum. So we, you know, we prepped up quite a bit, but now <laughs> I suppose, you know, we probably didn't choose quite as wisely as we could have, but now it's 2023 and we're struggling to get through some of the things that were used by 2022 and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got to sort of have that 25 year dehydrated stuff, you know, freeze dryers are really expensive. Um, I don't know if you've ever looked into purchasing one of them. They're like, well over 10,000 bucks from what yeah. I can see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I left it on the shelf. Mm. So um, <clears throat> how do you get around that sort of thing? You just have the really long life stuff or what are some prepping tips that perhaps you could give some of the listeners as far as food and um, storage goes? Well, the first or thing you got to think of, you got to decide. Yeah, the first thing you got to decide is what is your prepping strategy? Are you going to bug out or bug in? Um, mm, mm, good point. If you're going to bug out, you have to have um, a destination in mind. Um, 
you're going to have to be able to coordinate with other people because you're not going to be able to do this alone, no matter how badass you think you are, you're not. Um, so with that destination in mind, um, do you have food and weapons that uh, as you're going along, you've already got stuff prepped, you know, 10, 15, 30, 100 miles out uh, so that you can hit your checkpoints and resupply and keep moving on um, to, right. until you get to your final destination. If you're planning on bugging in, uh, well, then you've got to, you know, what your housing scenario looks like. You know, if you live in an apartment and you're in a highly de uh, population, of being able to be self-sustaining for the longer term is probably not going to be as advantageous as say you were living out in the sticks where um, there's a, there's copious amounts of land to um, have long-term agriculture on. Um, but on the plus side of living in a highly populated area, communication will happen faster because everybody's more densely populated and um, you don't necessarily have to have, you know, cell phones or computers to get messages through to other places. You can, you know, do it the old fashioned way with, you know, pen and paper and a run. Uh, uh, now out in the, out in the, out in the country, um, you're separated by large swaths of land that um, with very few people. So trying to cover that distance um, with communication is going to be a little bit trickier because, um, I mean, imagine the length of string you need between the two tin cans to get, you know, talk to someone 25 acres away. Mm, uh, yes. On the plus side of being in a densely populated area, you have more people at your disposal. So you're going to be able to build up um, a little mini infantry, so to say. Um, whereas out in the country, you're dispersed. So if anything was to happen out in the country, um, you have to collect everybody together and they have to come from farther distances to get to that point. Um, so a lot of things to think about before you even get to the food part. Um, <laughs> yeah. Once you get to the food, <laughs> yeah. So once you get to the food part, then you got to decide, um, uh, do I have enough storage space to maintain all these cans of food? Um, am I going to stockpile MREs or or anything like that? Um, and if I am what, stockpiling what, can you, MREs, can you explain what an MRE is? Oh, Sorry to yeah, uh, it's all good. Um, an MRE stands for meal ready to eat, and it is um, what the what the military uses as part of their food rations while they are deployed. Right. Okay. Um, you basically have a meal in a bag and a spoon and a small thing of Tabasco and maybe a, well, in the old days, they used to have those little Senka packets mm -hmm. um, for your coffee that you never had water for. So you just ate the grounds and that was, how you, that's how you did it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, they're expensive now. They're not as cheap as they used to be. Um and of course, you know, the world's militaries are stockpiling more now than ever. So the availability of it um, is going to probably go to them first. So you get whatever's left over. Um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does make the cost of it go up. Um, you can make your own MREs if you know how to um, 
prepare, <clears throat> excuse me, prepare the food, preserve it, and vacuum seal the bag so that it lasts a long time, and you can and you don't have to refrigerate it. So mm-hmm. uh, you could do you could go that route. Um, I do the MRE thing just because it's just easier and more convenient. Plus, I had you know a bunch left over from the old days that I still haven't eaten. Um, okay. I do the can, I do canned foods because I plan to bug in, not out. Um, right, okay. Now I do have a bug out strategy that you know, but that's 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 the that's the Alamo. That's that's the mode of last resort. Mm-hmm. So to leave. Um. Yeah, to leave. I mean, I work my ass off for this place, and I'm not about to give it up willingly. Yeah, fair enough. So, and, you, would you say that you sort sorry. of become? Sorry. I think we're on a little bit of a delay here. No, go ahead. Would you say that you've sort of, um, to a point, kind of fortified your place without doxing? <laughs> oh, ab- oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, there is no place in my house where there isn't a weapon. There is no place in my house that doesn't have, you know, adequate ammunition for said weapon. Mm. And when you walk into my house, you don't know that it's there. Yeah, right. It's all hidden in places that... You would never know we're there and in places you would never expect. Yeah. Okay. Uh, cool corners out of my shop. Yeah. And out of my shop is the same thing. So if I'm not in the house and, you know, shit is the fan, well, I'm ready. I can get to the house um, and, and, and start my, uh, uh, start my defensive plan. Mm-hmm. Um, in my, in my vehicle at no place do I not have a weapon. I have a weapon everywhere. Yeah. Do you um, have do you have places that where you've buried things off your property? In other words, like maybe a few miles away. Do you have like little points where you can go to that nobody else knows? A few about? miles. Anything like that? A few miles. Try several states. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you 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 do have that. You you do have little <laughs> places you can go with. Yeah, I absolutely do. I have I have yeah. multiple bug out locations that I can go to, and I have. Weapons and food and, and ammo caches all along the way. And okay, well, the, and the consistent note, thing here is... I'm sorry, you keep going. Okay, and to make note real quick is that if you're going to have a bug out strategy, make sure it's not along a major freeway or highway. Do it in the backwoods. Take the long road uh, because you're less likely to have a, a, a militaristic or even... Um, a criminal encounter along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess they'll stick with the uh, the main masses and clean up the other bits later. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, the the consistent thing here is plan, 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 and um, I guess also make connections with people because if you don't already have those connections, how can you trust anyone really? So I guess that's, that's quite a long-term thing to be able to build up trust with people. Um, but you're going to have to trust somebody and, I and guess, you would be, at some point if that happens. Well, at, at some point you are. And what's really, I mean, in my daily life is I just go and talk to people, which when I was growing up in California, that wasn't something you did, but I did it anyway. Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it turned out bad. But at the end of the day, um, it it was you you discovered that more and more people have common ground with what you're what you're 
what you're trying to establish with them than not. Um, mm -hmm. And that goes back to, um, you know, the volume of the current world being turned way down. Once you get to the nitty gritty, everybody kind of wants the same thing. You know, they want security, they, they, they want um, community, they want uh, uh, to be able to exist for a long period of time. And, it, you know, and if they have families or plan on having families, they want them to be able to, you know, pick up where they left off and start in a still a safe and, you know, desirable world to live in. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much the common denominator across the board. So once you start talking to people and you whittle out all the politics and you whittle out all the religion and you whittle out all the things that divide us mm -hmm. and get down to the nitty gritty of what what really needs to be, you're going to find that we have a lot of common ground that that currently in the world, uh, whoever the big T they are, um, are trying to not let us look at. We're trying to just focus on our divisions and not yes. on our similarities yes. and, and our common goals. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. It's, it's all about divide and conquer. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's an age old war tactic, isn't it? Absolutely. It is. And it works. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you have, you've did a fascinating career for quite a long time, which was underwater welding. Is that, is that what it's called, or is there another name for underwater welding? <laughs> no, that's that's what it's called um, in the in the career. I mean, like the guys that are actual underwater welders, the the, the process of welding underwater water is called wet welding. Right. Um, and when you get your certification, that's what it says on it. But um, as far as you know, how the companies put it out there as to what they're hiring for and firing for that's uh they're, they're going to call it underwater welder yep okay. and both work so the companies that would hire that very specialized um those specialized professionals as yourself i guess we're talking mining companies um shipping companies military i guess mm. who else would would hire someone like that it's predominantly, it's, predominant, it's predominantly the oil field that uh, needs the underwater welders. And mostly here in the Gulf of Mexico and the United States, because uh, that's where all the offshore drilling is done. Um, uh, places like, you know, Sydney has a, hires a lot of them themselves. Huge market for them uh, because of the North Sea. Uh, the Middle East is kind of hit and missed. Um, Israel is a big uh, is a big proponent of them. Uh, but in the modern times, the welding, the well, the underwater welding is a, is a very rare activity. You don't do a lot of it, um, unless there's like an emergency, like after Hurricane Katrina. I mean, I welded my brains out underwater, but uh, right. Uh, yeah. After about three years of that, it kind of died off to where it was a very specialized uh, project where there was no other way to put it together than to weld it underwater. Right. Yep. So just maintenance, repairing damage, um, checking things out, I guess. Oh yeah. Expecting... Yeah. I mean, the bulk of the bulk of the work is the divers. You're going to be doing a lot of pipeline work. You're going to be doing a lot of uh, a lot of friggin' hand jetting and <laughs> and. Uh, uh, 
you know, setting removals of platforms and a lot of rig support, um, which is um, not as common, but it's it, there's enough there to make a living if all you did was rig support. I'm not a fan of rig support, but uh, a lot of guys do. Okay, so what what kind of outfit? What 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 were you wearing? Like what what sort of uh, diving equipment, etc.? Were you like um, attached with a with a a hose to a vessel above you, or were you? Did you have tanks, or how did that work? Uh yes, yes, and yes. So right, okay. <laughs> uh, in the <laughs> in the commercial diving uh, arena, it's a little differently. Um, all of your dives will be surface supplied, which means you have a hose connecting you to the surface. Mm-hmm. However, you do have a contingency that you have on your back, which we call the bailout bottle, and that's basically just a scuba tank. Uh, um, that's on your back that connects to your diving helmet. Um, and all dives will be done on, uh, with a hard helmet and not not on a scuba rig or nothing like that. Right. Uh, right. You will always have communications from you to the surface. Either you have a comms wire that connects you to, um, to a radio up at the top. You have a mm-hmm. speaker and a microphone mm-hmm. inside your hat. And... Uh, as far as the dress, um, it depends on the temperature of the water. Now, the Gulf of Mexico is very warm. So from about March to November, I mean, you're diving in jeans and a long sleeve shirt and some uh, rubber steel toe boots and some gloves. And that's your that's what you're diving in. Oh, OK. Uh, yeah. Some of the guys that are really super skinny, they, they'll wear like a wetsuit top um, or, you know, something to help keep them warm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. In the winter time, mm-hmm. when the water uh, starts to get cold, um, you're gonna you're gonna start wearing you know a full wetsuit, usually a two piece Farmer John style, uh, and then you have a hot water that's a hot water hose that's taped into your hose, and then you just fill the wetsuit up with hot water being pumped oh. from the surface. Right. I was wondering how you got around that because even doesn't matter how thick your wetsuit is or whatever, after a while it's gonna. You're going to get cold. <laughs> I know that from Tasmania, but uh, I can imagine it's 10 times colder where you'd be like underwater. Yeah, and it, and it also, yeah, and it also depends on how deep you go too. The deeper yeah. you go, the colder it gets. And um, uh, divers like to drink a lot of coffee before their dive. It helps um, <laughs> okay. keep them warm when uh, the hot water's not keeping up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so can you tell us, it, was there any exciting or terrifying moments that you had? Can you tell us about your, if, did you have any scary moments? Oh, I've had a few. I mean, it's a hostile environment where we weren't, we weren't meant to be fish. So, <laughs> I uh, yeah, so we're taking ourselves into a, an inherently a hostile environment. You know, if every, if any part of our equipment was to fail, um, you have, not minutes, but seconds to figure it out. Otherwise, you're a goner. Right. Um, uh, the welding and the burning part is probably the most dangerous aspect of it all. And burning more so than welding, but uh, mainly because you do more uh, underwater burning than you do um, uh, welding. Uh, so when you're cutting steel underwater, you're using what's called an exothermic torch. Mm-hmm. But it's... Uh, 
it has uh, you're using rods instead of just like gas and oxygen mixture. The uh, rod is the fuel, oxygen is the catalyst, and then it's hooked up to a welding machine. Um, and you're pumping down about 180 amps to the diver. Uh, and the only thing separating you from it is a is a knife switch, which has been around since you know, you know, around the time of uh, you know electricity first started becoming a thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's where the importance of communication is, is because you can literally break the entirety of the circuit with the knife switch. So uh, when you're burning, you put the rod into its little holder and it's got oxygen that flows through this core of this tube that's the rod. And inside that rod has a bunch of little mini rods that line it in a circle or pattern. Um, which are the fuel rods. And so when you strike the arc, you tell the, you tell the supervisor up at the top in the dive shack to make it hot and he connects the circuit and you'll know. And uh, one of two ways, if you got a break in your, in the gloves, because you wear rubber gloves to insulate yourself, mm -hmm. you got a break in the gloves, you're going to feel every last ounce of that. Um, and the other little cool indicator is, is that the end of the rod will start to bubble. Right. Yeah. So then you make contact with the steel and the steel, you know, ignites the rod. You strike it like a match, just like, you know, pretty much everything else in the metal trades. Yeah. And once you get a good, once you get a flame started and, and you're starting to burn metal in half, um, you tell the top side to make it cold and then it becomes self-sufficient. At the tip of that rod is about 10,000 degrees. And about a half an inch back, it's about the temperature of the water. It's pretty amazing how that how that works. But yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. It's just it seems so um, I don't know so opposite, isn't it? Like welding and and fire and and heat underwater. It's just it's fascinating that somebody figured that out. It goes out. against it goes against everything you were ever taught. Yeah. Well, <laughs> welcome to the world. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What so about, the dangerous what, part about that, the dangerous part about burning is um, as you are, you know, melting in metal in half is that at 10,000 degrees, what's literally happening is the water molecule is being separated. So now you have your water, you have your, um, your hydrogen and the oxygen separating from itself. So it's turning into a gas form. That's Brown's gas. Yeah, it's going against... Uh, um, <clears throat> let me see. So you go from a solution to two gases. Um, one is oxygen and one is hydrogen and one feeds the other. Mm -hmm. So if you were ever to trap that gas in a pocket behind, uh, whatever you're burning on and you were to ignite, say the hydrogen or the oxygen, mm -hmm. now you've created a shape charge and that explosion is going to come out the cut you just made. And if you're standing in front of it, you're going to take every last ounce of it. Wow. Very, very dangerous stuff. It is amazingly dangerous. And yeah, I've had a couple of good in water explosions. One of them that, you know, ripped the regulator right off my, my hat. And, um, you know, we had to figure out, you know, because you're diving and we we're deep enough that you couldn't dive air. You had to dive a mixed gas called um, Heliox. We call it HEO2 which is helium and oxygen. Uh, and 
it's very expensive and a lot they don't like it when you just free flow your hat and just you know and you know blow all the water out of your head but at the same time they want you to blow all the water out of your head and get to the downline mm-hmm. um in which which happened i mean i was knocked out for a second i came to and i started breathing a little bit of water um i tipped my face downward so that the hole was, was facing down in the like a diving bell you know the same same type of thing holes at the bottom and the bells at the top so i used my helmet like that Got myself to the downline, told the supervisor at the top what was going on, uh, shot shot my depth in and started my decompression process. And then, right. um, so from about, I was at 206 feet and you don't cross back over to air until you get to about 190, 180. Um, okay. So once I got to there, uh, they crossed me back over to air. And then once I got back on regular air, of course, the water just flew out of my hat because it's a denser gas. Oh, okay. Uh, and then I got up to my first water stop and they asked me, they're like, hey, do you want to omit your decompression and do a, you know, do a table six in the chamber? Or do you want to do your in-water obligation and just do a normal chamber ride when you get to the surface? I, and I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll stick it out. And they're like, okay. And then they called the office, told them what happened let them know what I was about to do. And the office immediately added more decompression gases um, and got them on a boat coming out to us because they knew I was going to use a bunch of it up. Right, okay. And uh, and I did. I used uh, I used about four banks of uh, gas because um, once you cross over to what we call a 50-50, which is 50% oxygen, 50% nitrogen, both inert gases, and uh, d- did my ride up to the surface, got in the chamber, did my surface decompression, and everything was fine. I was a little sore, but I mean, I was, I, I, was I was very alive. And that was the, that's the good part. Yeah. Yeah. You recover. <laughs> How long does that decompression process take? So I guess that's going to change with the, your, the depth that you're at, but um, as you, you have to come up in stages. So is it like you're coming up and then you stop for a while or is it just a very slow rise? How does the decompression method work? It, it's a, it's a very slow ride. Um, it's very time consuming, which is why um, in the commercial world, they split it in half. You do the minimal amount of in-water obligation, and then you then they re- pick you up, get you on deck. And then um, you go into a decompression chamber, and then you basically re-decompress for the second time just to make sure you got none of them bad bubbles boiling in your blood. And then there's basically two types of tables out there. They have what's called the Navy table. And then, um, which is probably hands down the worst tables to be diving under. But um, th- in the Gulf, they use what's called a modified Navy table, which is all based on time and duration. And then you have what's called a partial pressure table. And the partial pressure tables um, are judged based off of the partial pressure of depth versus gas mixture. More complicated, but um, I like those tables better. Um, I always feel better after those tables because it always errors on the side of the diver. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, if you're in air limits, so say about from zero to 180-ish feet, um, you're going to be pretty straightforward. You're down for a certain period of time, do your work, then you're going to, you know, be done with your work, jump on the downline, climb up, the downline and sometimes they'll have a decompression stage for you 
and or other times you just hang on the downline and just breathe bubbles. Uh, and it's increments are usually at every 10 feet. Um, okay. The deepest okay. one is shorter, and then the shallowest one is usually your longest stop. Um, and then they pick you up and then slam you in the chamber and then do it all over again. Wow. It's, uh, well, you can have that because <laughs> this <laughs> sounds like a nightmare to me, but uh, wow, I'm really glad that somebody is willing to do that. <laughs> um, can I ask your thoughts? Do you, do you recall the, um, the Titan, the little submersible that went down, supposedly oh, on the, on its uh, way down, uh, Titanic? On the Titanic, mm. yeah. Can I get your thoughts on that? Because um, quite frankly, it just seems a little bit absurd that uh, five extremely important and very, very rich people would get into a basically a, <laughs> a round shoebox sort of thing, um, which apparently wasn't really – it just seems absurd, the whole thing. I mean, I'm sure you know the, the story. Well, the, what the actual what would be your thoughts on that? The actual hull of the Titan was well built. Uh, now, all of the electronical stuff inside was maybe a little questionable, but that's not really my expertise. Um, that sub, it, okay, I'll just give you a summary. That whole story is a bunch of bullshit. Oh, I'm totally on board with that. Um. There's some questionable things. I mean, it was deeper than what even Navy subs go to. Um, it was it was doing things that it shouldn't have been doing, nor was it ever designed to do. Um, and the story of it, of just losing power and then it drifting off and imploding into super deep water just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, nor to any thinking person. <laughs> well, in order for that thing to be um, licensed to do, to work, it had to have several redundancies in place. And it's hard to imagine. I'm not saying it can't happen, but it's hard to imagine where you have, you know, that many redundancies all fail at the same time. Yes. Um, what, driven by a Sony PlayStation um, hand controller is that I mean was that them giving themselves away a little bit do you think or is that quite viable mm. I know it's not your expertise but <laughs> just your opinion I, I think, well I think it could be viable because it basically is the same thing as you know radio controlled airplanes and stuff like that it's it's almost the same type of technology so it's yeah. not a really <laughs> a complicated thing mm. Yeah, it was more. Yeah, they weren't really be, being propelled, were they? They were. It was more just um, being. Uh, what's the word? Just sort of correcting the path, I, I guess. Um, yeah, um, and there was. Just, no... I don't know. It just. It just seems very odd that um, such important people would be shoved <clears throat> all together into a little thing like that. And and the funny, the other funny thing was that there was, a, I believe, there was a French, a French boat or French ship, um, a vessel that had had something on board that was very, very specific to um, a rescue. Um, and it just happened to be in the area at the time, which uh, well, was kind of... They weird. also had a Navy submarine in the area at the time as well, too, and had picked them up on radar. Yes, is that the one that or said sonar. that they heard a bang or something, some rubbish? 
Yeah, yeah, they said they heard it implode, but at the same time, then they should have heard it lose power and all that other stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah, none of it really adds up. So my my conclusion as you I don't know whether you listen to all the all the episodes, but my conclusion is that they um they didn't really perish. <laughs> they uh probably down the bunker in the cocktail bar. Yeah, I think that there was something amiss. Um I can't put my finger on it. Um and it really wasn't something that I was that interested in either. Um, I, it was more of a distraction. I mean, because NASA yeah, puts exactly. important people yeah. in a can all the time and launches them into space. And, and you know, every now and then they blow up. Uh, so, I mean, when you take in, when you, when you embark on some of these incredibly dangerous jobs, uh, one training is absolute paramount and the training isn't necessarily what you're going to do like work-wise you know how to set up a reciprocating saw underwater or you know a hand jetting it's how to get back alive mm-hmm. that's the focus of your training is what to do in every situation and you rehearse it and you rehearse it and you rehearse it and you rehearse it until it's there yep. and once it's there you know same thing that the military does with their you know super intense training is that eventually you know, you're going to do it by muscle memory. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the likelihood that you're going to suffer some sort of fatality like that um, should be rare. Yeah, it's true. I suppose it's just a matter of, uh, well, as you say, make it muscle memory. So it's just an automatic reaction, isn't it? It's just yeah. another, another procedure in this situation. Yep. Yeah, so, you, just, um, you just do it. Can I get your, you, you're very interested in, I mean, we'll just, we were just talking about space a second ago. Um, what's your thoughts on space travel and how do they get through the Van Allen belt? Uh, as I understand it, the Van Allen belt is actually very predictable. It's not necessarily, um, a bunch of rocks, you know, spinning at this and, you know, unpredictable rate. Um, it moves and does its thing consistently. So it's always going to be there. And it's also trapped uh, within a radiation belt as well. So that's going to help sustain and make stability for it. Uh, there are openings in the Van Allen belt as well. So you can plot your course through um, some of these openings. And uh, which is part of a lot of the things that you heard, like when you hear like the um, when um, Buzz Aldrin and the boys back in the day, they were mentioning how, you know, we're passing through this and we're passing through that. I mean, they had it mapped out to where they knew where they were at at all times. And they knew that as they were passing certain points that they hit the they hit those points at the right time because it was pre-planned to do so. Um, and then of course on the return, they have, you just do it in reverse, um, Mm -hmm. which which is why I believe we did go to the moon. And I, um, I think that what happened on the moon, we'll never truly know, at least not today, maybe tomorrow, but definitely not today. But I think that when we're putting all these satellites into space, um, 
they're doing a couple of things over the years since you know since the 60s up to now our technology has increased exponentially i mean by leaps and bounds and so our monitoring of these elements out in space is going to be a hell of a lot more easier to um, map out and get over the top of the obstacles because now you got all these satellites you got the space station up there i mean everything is being watched and if you look at the video feeds through you know through the uh, couple of these satellites and the space station, not all of it is is densely packed asteroids. I mean, there's there's a lot of openness between here and the, here and the moon. Mm. I I find it difficult to understand how with so much. I mean, they say there's a lot of space junk up there, and some of it is tiny. However, collision can create disaster i find it incredible that there can be a path mapped through so many micro bits and pieces that are flying around yeah i don't know it's it's does my head in <laughs> well maybe if you if, if i mean if you look at it from a different perspective i mean what what exactly are these spacecraft that they're making they're nothing more than a pressure vessel they're just a big steel can that has some ceramic lining on it so it protects you from the heat. It's got a um, another couple layers in it that keeps the radiation out. <laughs> I mean, if you break it down to its simplest components, that's really all that these things are, just a pressure vessel. Um, we, yeah. store, we store liquids in it. We build submarines out of a pressure vessel. We make um, um, our decompression chambers were made. We're just a, a pressure vessel with human occupancy. That part alone is is not really that hard to figure out. And we know that um, through met, uh, through you know through the art of um, the metal trades and the uh, metallology that goes into it, that you know we can stop some of these things and not do any type of significant damage. Now, can fatigue happen down the road? Absolutely. Nothing that humans build will ever last forever. Mm. And they're not mm -hmm. impervious to everything. So in time, um, yeah, things are gonna fail, but um, as a whole, uh, I, I think that the science is pretty sound when it comes to building a steel can with a bunch of fuel underneath it and launch that bitch up into space. Um, we know that the human body can withstand some pretty extreme pressures. I mean, we prove it in the diving world all the time. We go to super extreme depths. I mean, I personally have been to 750 feet underwater and that's, you know, you're going to feel that. And, and, and we go deeper than that. I mean, a buddy of mine went to 1,002 feet and, and, and there's a, I know some guys that have been a little bit deeper, not much, but it's there. And when you're going up in the atmosphere, you're not having pressure um, pushed onto the body. I mean, with the exception of the G-force. Mm -hmm. So with the G-forces pushing on you, that's eventually going to go away once you break, you know, once you break up as I think, what is it? The stratosphere is the last one. And then you bust out into space. And don't quote me on the stratosphere part because I don't know that. But I think I do. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, whatever the last atmospheric belt is, once you get past that, you you've now broken free of gravity. Yeah. Um, and you're no longer going to have G forces exerted onto you. And then that's when your body gets relief and you're able to do whatever you need to do. 
So I don't think that it's that far-fetched that human beings can't do this. I think it's um, – I find it fascinating that they had that much of an understanding back in the 60s when they say that uh, they basically did it all on the power of what we sort of have on our phone now. Um, well, but anyway. Yeah. Well, those guys, those guys, those guys guessed and got it right. <laughs> <laughs> good guess, guys. <laughs> it was a good guess. Uh, oh, you know, recycle some of the old Doctor Who props. Um, so... <laughs> Can I? You're very interested in um, the possibility of aliens, uh, so we've been discussing behind the scenes. Not the, um, not the possibility get, of. But not real. the possibility. You're that. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, what's? Can I get your thoughts on Project Blue Beam? Um, what? What that really is all about? Uh, do you know much about that, or, or anything you want to talk uh, about? Name. Actually. Well, if we, if we talk about all of the projects from the time of, say, Roswell uh, up into today. 1947, um, was that? 1947, exactly. Right. Uh, so in 1947, um, they had a craft crashing in the desert, which we all know. Um, and immediately the Army releases a statement. And in that statement, it says, We've, we have captured a flying saucer with bodies. Exactly 24 hours later, um, they changed their story uh, that it was oh, it was just a weather balloon and and and, and sorry, my bad. Yeah, the no. weather balloons—they really caught the blame, don't they? Oh man, and they still are. <laughs> They're sticking to that to this day. Yeah. It's a weather balloon, <laughs> and, and it's the most ridiculous cover story ever. Um, now when I was living out on the West Coast, me and my buddies were out drinking in a place called the Arizona Strip, which is on the Utah-Arizona border. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were out there, and usually the first two nights, we usually spend about a week out there, and the first two nights, you know, you, we're tying one off, and then the next three days we're recovering from our poor choices. <laughs> and uh, so about the fourth day in, we're all good and recuperated, and we're barbecuing, Um out there in the desert and we and it's nighttime say about eight or nine o'clock at night and i'm just laying there on the ground looking up at the stars because out there in the desert you can see the entirety of the milky way and it's one of the most awe-inspiring things i i mean that i i personally believe that a human being could take in the vastness of space mm-hmm. that's uh so, so you're, you're right in this you're right out in the middle of nowhere are you are you basically saying yeah oh yeah right there's, nothing. The light pollution. there's nothing there's yeah, nothing Oh yeah, there is nothing out there. It's just you, a fire, and whatever you brought with you. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, this is you know late '80s, early '90s, so we we didn't have cell phones or none of that technology or nothing like that with us. And even if they did exist, we couldn't afford it anyway. Yep. Sure. Um, and I'm laying there, and I'm looking, and there's this dot in the sky. And I look over to my buddy, and I was like, John, what's that dot? Is that Venus? He's like, yeah, it's probably Venus. I'm like, all right. Well, then it starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm like, John, that dot's big. So he looks up and he's like, well, no shit, that thing's huge. And it got to, it was hard to judge, but it was no longer on the horizon. It was up, it was up into, you know, the flatlands. And so probably maybe two, 300 miles away. 
and probably the size of maybe two or three football fields. Mm -hmm. wow. And I don't know anything that we have in our arsenal militarily, whether it be uh, secret projects or currently available released craft that can fly that high at that size. And so we go and get the other two guys, which was, you know, Scotty and, and we called him Mosquito because he was tiny. But um, like, dude, check this out. We're looking at it. And it got closer and it got closer and it got closer. And then it got it got close enough to where we could tell this wasn't anything made by human hands. It was absolutely silent. It was incredibly steady. I mean, it never wavered off its path. And then it shot straight up in the air, poof, and, and it was gone. Did you see any lights? And we just looked at each other. Was there, a, was there any colors or? Uh, no, I think it was it was too far away for that. Um, it was mostly the size and the glow of it. It was definitely a really brilliant bluish white light, and um, which is why we first thought it was a planet, um, until the planet started getting too close and then stopped being a planet. And planets don't shoot straight up in the air. And uh, so that that's what got me started down the path of, you know, UFOs and aliens. Now, we didn't see any aliens or nothing like that. But I started looking into some of the research around um, UFOs and um, otherworldly beings. And, of course, the big question is, is how did they get here? I mean, the vastness of space. Hmm. It's so incredible. I mean, and we've estimated, you know, from us to get to places like just our sister galaxy out in Andromeda, you know, it'd be like, you know, a, a, a ton of light years. So thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, just to get there. Um, and of course, nobody lives that long. Um, so we would never see it anyway. Um, and then all the theories of, you know, wormholes and, you know, rifts and Mm -hmm. portals and things like that which are very fantastical sounding um but einstein back in back in the early days einstein had it theoretically put together that yeah these could exist he's and he admitted i can't prove it right now but i will eventually and of course he didn't he died but um you know astrophysicists and physicists and guys way smarter about that stuff than i am are proving that, hey, we don't just have this one dimension. We can actually prove seven of them, but we think there's 12. Yes, so heard that. Yeah, so now that we've got dimensions figured out, we've got that maybe it's possible through wormholes that it can bend space and time, which we've already come to a conclusion that it was possible back in the 40s. Uh, not to mention all of the other projects that, you know, that we had going on during and after World War II, you know, the Manhattan Project, the Delphia Project experiment, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. We were doing some pretty crazy things with science that has never been even thought of before. So imagine a, a, a civilization that's a thousand years way more advanced than us, that has had plenty of time from banging rocks together to you know beam me up scotty um who's to say they haven't figured it out now are some of these uh unidentified craft in the skies you know part of you know 
our government's um, secret projects um, defense-wise? Sure, I, I'll, I'll admit that outright. We got some pretty mm -hmm. cool technology. Um, number one is the F-117 that was developed in the 60s that had perfect stealth capabilities and was, you know, the workhorse during the first uh, Gulf War when uh, Papa Bush decided he wanted to piss on everybody's Wheaties. But it was the workhorse. Nobody could see it. It was too incredibly fast. Radar couldn't pick it up. I mean, it was invisible. Yeah, that was um, the paint paint that they used, wasn't it? To make it invisible. Oh, you talking shape. about visually or radar invisible or both? Both. Right. Both. Yep. The way that it was shaped, the way that the paint was, it made it, it deflected light in such a way and radar just bounced off it and shot off in the wrong direction. You couldn't see it. You couldn't tell what it is. Um, the F-4 uh, Phantom was another project that came out of um, that whole Skunk Works thing that was based off of um, the idea of being able to, um, of inter interplanetary travel. Uh, and of course, during the Vietnam era, the, the, the F-4 Phantom was like this, was an amazing workhorse, even though it was still a piece of shit. But man, that thing was awesome when it came to jet aircraft. It was incredibly fast, highly maneuverable. You could carry a high payload, which is something that had never been achieved before. They have all three of those things put together. And it had semi-stealth technology. Yeah. And that was in the 60s. Well, that's what they say, isn't it? That they're generally 50 years ahead of the toys that they give us to play with. So, Absolutely. And Skunk Works even said, we now have the ability to take E.T. home. So what did that statement mean? <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I was just thinking Steven Spielberg. <laughs> like more predictive <laughs> <that> programming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know, but those yeah, still still the mental conditioning, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well so many questions, so many questions. Um we've probably got about ten, fifteen left, so um I wanted to ask you if you don't mind, um you uh you you told me a little while ago that you're a Freemason, correct? I am a Freemason, yeah. Um, that was, if I remember correctly, you were a fourth degree, is that right? Third. Third, right. Okay. Yeah. So how, how long have you been a Freemason and, and why, what, what attracted you to Freemasonry? Well, let's start with that question. Um, well, actually I'll answer them in order. Um, I've, uh, a few years now, it's been a while, mm -hmm. uh, and um, what brought me into it was um, when you, I first was very studied a lot about the Knights Templar, and um, I wanted to know what they found under Solomon's Temple, mm -hmm. even though mm -hmm. we'll probably never know because um, you know between the Vatican and um, the King of France at that time you know, just went, if they can't own it or slot, or if they can't own it or control it, they're going to go and destroy it or slaughter it. One of the two. And that's what mm -hmm. they did. Um, so that secret's probably lost forever. Um, but we know that some of the Templars were absorbed into the Freemasons in, at the Roslyn Chapel in Scotland. So that got me on the path of Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, before all the internet stuff, your only recourse was the library or the bookstore. You know, me and B. Dalton were, were homies. 
And uh, there was so much negative press. I couldn't believe how much negative press there was. And it was hard to find stuff on Freemasonry that had these guys in a positive light because I knew that they were a philanthropic uh, organization. I knew that them combined with the Shriners were doing medical stuff, um, medical uh, hospital care for people that couldn't afford care for absolutely free to them and all off of donations. Um, I knew that. Um, and of course, you know, my parents being, you know, super religious, they always downplayed the Masons and this and that and the other. Uh, yes, before you go on there, your parents were, uh, what were they? I can't remember. Mormons. Were they Mormons? Mormons, yeah, right. Okay. They were Mormons, yeah. Yeah, I was raised Mormon. Yep. You can't tell it now, but I was. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that kind of, that kind of being raised Mormon, I mean, you take a lot of flack from everybody. I mean, everybody. Some of the accusations and stuff that they say actually do have a valid point. There are some things in the LDS church that really could be cleaned up and fixed. Um, But there are aspects of the Mormon church that um, very few other uh, religious organizations out there do for their members that the Mormons do for theirs. And so knowing it from the inside, I was, I was, you know, the only way that I'm going to figure this out is I'm going to have to go talk to a Mason. Mm-hmm. Well, I couldn't find a Masonic Lodge because um, nobody really thought about it then. And then I came across a book on Freemasonry. And it was written by a Freemason. And they he, he was talking about some of the stuff that he was doing within his particular order. Um, within, I believe it was the Scottish Rite. I'm not, don't quote me on that. It was a long time ago. Um mm-hmm. And these were good things. I mean, these were very good things. Yeah, sure, they might have, you know, bordered on the esoteric, but at the same time, this is an organization that has been around for well over 500 years. And everybody in their grandma seems to want to infiltrate it and expose it for what it's not. Um, and um, as time went on, I finally, uh, once I settled down here where I'm at, uh, I went in. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go talk to the Masons. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. I got the time to do it. I'm going to go do it. So I went in and I said, hey, look, guys, I'm interested in Freemasonry. What can you tell me? Mm-hmm. And they sat me down and they put this big ass plate of food in front of me. And they said, where do you want me to start? And I said, well, start at the beginning. Well, they started talking about the things that, you know, uh, what it is to be a Mason and what a Mason, what it is to be a Mason is about um how they said it to me was about taking good men and making them better but it's not because of you know brainwashing or programming or anything like that it's about self-discipline you if you're going to claim to live to a higher moral standard then you have to exude it by action uh so you have this moral discipline that's instilled in you that helps um with your everyday life. Now, some of this stuff is I already had ingrained in me from my days in the military and um, kind of the way I saw life in general already, it was already there. So as I see, and then they directed me, they're like, go to Barnes and Noble. And there are books written by Freemasons 
if you don't know about masonry, well, that's your fault because it's out there. And so I went down to Barnes and Noble and oh shit, I found the aisle. Of course, it was under the secret society's aisle, which is total crap. Um, but one side of that aisle was nothing but books on Freemasonry written by Freemasons. And they go into all kinds of aspects. So I bought a couple of them and I sat down and read them and I sat down and read them and I was liking what I what I was reading. Um, one of them was on uh, called the, uh, the Hiram Key which tells the story of Hiram Abiff, which is a prominent um, figure in, in Freemasonry, dates all the way back to King Solomon's um, first temple. And the part about Hiram was, is that these guys, he had these apprentices and um, Hiram knew the, the true name of God. And his apprentices weren't master masons yet so he wasn't going to tell them what that was you had to earn it by proving that you can you know do the things that masons need now back in those days uh the masons were actually real stone masons and um yeah they were real stone masons and they were basically the only ones allowed to travel freely amongst the lands because they were such a highly prized craft Yes, and if I, yeah, just, which is if I could just interject for a moment, uh, from my understanding, I believe that's where some of the secrecy came in was because they were protecting the methodology of their stone masonry uh, skills. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and they weren't necessarily protecting the knowledge of stone masonry itself. Um, but what made them such good masons was is everything everything that was incorporated in their work was related to you know god um the structure the discipline um what comes first then comes next and then and and the shapes uh geometry plays a major factor in that uh, uh are we talking so, sacred geometry oh well yeah it's sacred geometry but it's still geometry <laughs> Yeah, I'm just I mean, it's circles, about the triangles, and squares, and yeah, circles, triangles, squares. You know, right angles, obtuse angles. Yeah. I mean, it's all part okay. of geometry. Um, so you're talking about the material which, geometry of, of building and carving, etc. The the practical ex- material exactly kind of, right. Okay, right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so these guys decided that. They were going to threaten Hiram Abiff, and if he didn't give them the true name of God, they were going to kill him. And, of course, he said, no. If you want the true name of God, you have to be – you've got to become a Master Mason, and by becoming a Master Mason, you you earn the right to th- this particular set of knowledge. And, of course, they killed him. And then during the process of now what do we do with the body – they um they hid the body out in the desert in this secret place and um when the master uh, when the master of the masonic lodge came out and said hey where's Hiram? i needed to talk with him about you know the next stage of the building of course everybody you know kicked rocks i don't know hands in pockets head hung low i don't know what you're talking about well so they sent out a search party and eventually they found the grave of Hiram abiff and it was deduced that it was these guys that, that did the killing. 
and of course they were captured. Um, and they, they were punished accordingly as they did back, you know, 6,000 years ago. And over time, the stonemasons, you know, kind of stopped being a thing because building practices changed and technology changed and made it a lot easier and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. So nowadays we use the working tools like, like uh, you know, the square, the compass, um, the plumb, the level. These are all working tools that are philosophically attributed to masonry. You know, how you do it, um, why these particular tools mean something in your daily life, you know. Everything being very uh, measured. You hear things, yeah, things are measured, things are balanced, things are set in their proper place, um, and your place in it needs to be proper as well. So if you take take the ideology of of, of, of actual stonemasonry and apply the ideology to your daily life as a mason, um, it kind of bridges that gap of um, what do we, you know, how do we do it? How do we go about doing this? Well, in, in masonry, we, there is a way to do it. Is, is you, you, you use the same methodology as you would in building um, stone walls as you would in your daily life. Um, so yeah, that's so one part discipline. of it. Yeah. It is a discipline. Um, and can I, can I just ask one more question here? Uh, we're going to have to wrap it absolutely. up fairly soon, which I, I regret because I would love to carry this conversation on. Maybe we can get you back sometime, but, um, the big question, what does the G stand for in the Freemason uh, it stands for, logo? Officially it stands, officially it stands for God. Right. Okay. Uh, now there are some people within Freemasonry, and it depends on the region. And the United States is a little weird because we don't have a central main lodge that governs the entirety of the United States. Um, it's all relegated to the state. Um, but um, there's some aspects of it that say it's um, it represents God and geometry at the same time. Right. Yeah, some people say it's gnosis as well, G N O S I S. Which yeah, I guess those guys are up in the night. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're sorry, no, they're no, they're up in the night. It's not even close. I mean, right? Okay. Uh, yeah, that's there's lots free, of masonry. Oh, there's so much of it, and I hear it all the time. And I, sometimes I chuckle, sometimes I start to fume a little bit, and other times I'm like, you know what? If you're not willing to do the homework and you don't know, but you don't ask someone either that is a Mason, then, I mean, that's your own fault of believing and keeping yourself in a very paranoid world. Um, God is the center of Freemasonry. And it is the absolute cornerstone of it. And they do not deviate from that. Mm -hmm. um, the other aspect of it is, is that we also recognize that um, over the millennia, God has gone by several names, depending on the language of your area. So the one common denominator in all of this is because we do have we have Buddhist um, Masons. We do have um, some Hindu, even though that's a little trickier on that one. But. Uh, but several other faiths outside of Christianity and Judaism and Islam um, is 
the common denominator is the belief in one singular, all-powerful creator. That is God. And that uh, is what binds all of us um, on, on the planet, is that we were all created from one, one being. And um, if we don't recognize that other cultures, you know, say the same thing, maybe just in different words, they're still saying the same thing. And yeah. uh, rather than dividing us up based off of, you know, what we're calling it when the, when the absolute base principle is the same, um, well, that, that makes that, that's separating us as humans instead of binding us together as a whole. Yeah, very true. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, yes, it does. Um, okay. I would. Oh, I've got so many more questions, but I'm. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to wrap it up. I would. We're going to have to get you back. I think, Grant, would you be into that at some point? Yeah, absolutely. Just let me know. Yeah, that's great. Okay, because uh, I've got about another two and a, oh, one and a half pages of notes that <laughs> I'm not going to get through. <laughs> um, Oh, I've really enjoyed this. It's been great to talk to you, Grant. I really appreciate that you've come on and, and been so open with us as well because um, I wasn't really sure, you know, how far we were going to get with the Freemasonry. But I think, you know, the whole um, the whole secrecy thing, I, you know, I'm open to it being misunderstood. Um, but, you know, the um, lack of clarity does invite speculation, I guess. So it is, it is oh, good sure. to hear from, from somebody. Yeah, and we're not a secret society per se. Yes, we do have our secrets, but I mean, just like everybody else in the world, we're allowed to keep some things to ourselves. I mean, um, and there's nothing nefarious going on. We don't want to take over the world. We don't want to, you know, collect all the adrenochrome from your kids. We, we don't want any of that crap. That's the absolute opposite of what we believe in. Yeah, I, I gather, like you said, originally the, uh, the, I think you said we were referring to the military that it, it's like a brotherhood or the Marines. Yeah. Like a brotherhood. Um, so I guess it's a, it's a very similar thing. It's a brotherhood, isn't it? It's a, un, a unity, um, like-mindedness. Loyalty, bond. integrity, honor. Um, now we do have a female um, component to Freemasonry as well. Most Order people of the don't Eastern know star, that. Is that right? The Order of the Eastern Star. Yeah. Yes. They've been around for quite some time because the ladies went, uh, uh involved in the early Freemasonry, were they? And that was started much further down the track, I believe. Uh, yeah, that was in the uh, in the early 1700s, the Order of the Eastern Star came about. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that's somewhere where we can pick up next time we talk, um, talk about some of the the uh, offshoots, I guess, um, and how yeah, Freemasonry have... has uh, developed over the, over the years and adapted. They have adapted. Yeah. <laughs> awesome well yeah. yeah well i think we've covered a fair bit um that's been really good and uh wishing you the best for the times that are coming and um also wishing you a, a merry end of the year <laughs> whatever it is that you, you can do. say it Stella. you can say merry christmas it's okay i'm not a <laughs> yeah well that was one of my questions but we're going to have to leave it till next time um i'm 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 yeah, I have my own thoughts about Christmas. I'm I'm not terribly conventional in that sense either. So, um, each to his own, I believe. And uh, thank Absolutely. you very much, Grant. Really appreciate you being here with yep. us.
and if not there's a uh, not a problem. there's nowhere that you don't you don't sort of have a place that you can be found. I mean, preferably you probably don't, but I mean, like online, if there's no sort of you can go here and find me or you anything. Can, is, you, there, is there? Is uh, it? You can find me on Twitter. Uh, okay. At, uh, yeah, uh, at Grant G Prepper. What was that, Grant? G Prepper. Grant G Prepper. Okay, cool. That's your handle. All right. Well, um, I would assume that there's going to be a little bit of, there might be people who would like to ask you a few more questions perhaps, and you seem fairly open about it. So that's um, that's awesome. And also for prepping and anything like that, um, encourage people to, you also have some really interesting research, which again, we're going to have to address next time, but I'd love to get into some of that with you as well. Understand where you're at. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Grant. Well, thank you very much for this. Um, if you want to just hang around a few minutes after we uh, close out, we'll, I'll say goodbye to you in person. <laughs> okay, right. sounds good. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. And thanks to everybody for listening to the Union of the Unknowns. You can find us at unionoftheunknowns.com, uh, which is our link tree, and that will take you to all the little branches that we have for a newsletter sign-up and uh, Twitter and all that juicy stuff. And uh, thanks a lot for being with us today. We really appreciate your company. And we'll see you next time. Cheers, everybody. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Union of the Unknowns. You can find new episodes every week on all your favorite podcasting networks. 